at hand surgery. Let's open God's word, if you will, uh, on this uh, special weekend. We're having a special sermon from Psalm 2. If you open your Bible right in the middle, that's usually the book of Psalms, and we're looking at Psalm 2. And while you're turning, let me welcome those who might be watching live online. Uh, We miss many of you that are still homebound, but we invite all of you that are able to join us on Sunday here at Clifton Park Community Church. Psalm 2 from the Old Testament, as we'll be explaining, a very, very significant psalm. Psalm 1 and 2 together, not only introducing this book of the Bible, but really being cornerstones to the whole Bible and its message. (coughs) Let me read Psalm 2 from the English Standard Version. This is God's Word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice before him with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May the Lord bless the hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. We're celebrating Independence Day, the 4th of July. Um, I prefer the longer name to the 4th of July, Independence Day, as we broke off the shackles of a tyrant in Great Britain. Sorry if you're watching from England. Uh, and the American colonists uh, obtained the freedom they long sought. They declared it. They wrote out what they intended and declared themselves free of King George and free of Britain. But were they free of everything? How is it that independence stops short of becoming anarchy and accountability to no one. Hey, nobody's going to rule over us. Should each one do what is right in his own eyes? God forbid. Maybe you don't ask that question on Independence Day. Certain cultural trends in the last few years bring it to mind. How does liberty not evolve into anarchy? From where comes the power to manage and maintain our liberty? Politically speaking, in that independence declaration, we have a clue and it was followed up by a constitution. Our liberty is managed and guarded by the rule of law. These laws have their basis on God's law. That's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage here in the West. And I'm so thankful. The Declaration of Independence itself, you remember uh, that closing paragraph made this clear. After they enumerated many faults of the king, they said, we therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intents, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. 
Their declaration was independence from political tyranny, not from divine rule. For they appealed themselves to the supreme judge of the world, understanding that accountability that can never be cast off. Indeed, in the last line of the declaration, before these men signed it, how many men signed the declaration? 56. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The men who cast off King George kept themselves squarely under the King of Kings, the divine one to whom all men will give an account. That's not saying every founding father was an evangelical Christian, but nearly all of them confessed there was some divine being to whom men must give an account. This morning I've selected Psalm 2 for our instruction, for our encouragement on this special Sunday because it speaks directly to all these issues. And there's so much here. We'll do a little bit of teaching amidst the preaching. And I will let the psalm itself give us the conclusions when we get to that final heading. But what we have before us in Psalm 2, it's often called a royal psalm because it speaks of setting a king in place. And its original setting was likely either the uh, installation of King David or more likely the installation of Solomon, his son, in the line of David. When David was installed, the, the nations weren't raging as they would later on. Nevertheless, when God's king was being installed, this psalm in its original context was sung and used in worship to remind them at that very moment of acknowledging their earthly king that their ultimate loyalties were the God who sets him before them. Psalm 2 reminds us of the king of kings, of God the father, as well as God the son. You see, it's not only a royal psalm, it is a messianic psalm. Some of the language here in Psalm 2 describes David and Solomon and other kings, but some of it requires us to look ahead to David's greater son and the greater descendant that would sit on David's throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine son of God who would come. The promises made to the kings of Israel would only be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. It is clearly both a royal psalm and a messianic psalm. And Psalm 2 is quoted throughout the New Testament several times. It makes it all the more significant. It's interesting when we pause, and I I can't linger over this, but it will come up from time to time. Psalm 1 and 2 are intimately connected In fact, some scholars once thought they were all one psalm, but they're two psalms. The first one, as Matthew Henry said, was moral, and it showed us our duty to meditate on the word of God, to not do this, but to do that. Psalm 1 was moral, showed us our duty, and Henry says, this psalm, Psalm 2, is evangelical, and it shows us our Savior. Let's take a look at Psalm 2. The psalm breaks down into four stanzas, four verses as an ancient hymn. And each stanza, as it's been printed in the program, trying to maintain that uh, poetic uh, typesetting, each stanza is a different voice, as it were, speaking to us. The first describes the voice of the rebels in their rebellion against God their maker. The second shows us the voice of God the Father, the King of Kings. The third stanza will show us the voice of the Messiah King. And the final few verses, that fourth stanza, will show us the voice of the psalmist in making his exhortations to the readers, to the hearers. I think that will help us understand those four voices. And the ESV is wise to set those stanzas apart for us in our English 
translation. What do the rebels say? Well, first we ask, who are these rebels? There are nations raging and peoples plotting in vain and the kings of the earth setting themselves up against the Lord and his anointed. What's going on with the scene among men? We need to understand the Bible's message that due to sin, sin in Adam and Eve and in everyone's sins, men are fallen and do not serve God. We serve ourselves. Sin is selfishness. Sin is self-centeredness. Sin is rebellion against God and his laws. We say no. When God says do this, don't do that, we say no. I have my own ideas. I will do what I please. That's the voice of sin. And it comes forth from every fallen heart. As Michael Wilcox says in his commentary, it is not just the political powers of this world that have no desire to be ruled by him. There is scarcely a commercial or intellectual or cultural interest anywhere on earth which would not resent God's claims upon it. Where sinful men are, this rebellion is manifest, sometimes only in modest ways. You've heard of the child being disciplined by his parents. He sat in the corner on his little chair facing the corner for something naughty he had done. And uh, he says, kind of under his breath to his mother, he says, just so you know, although I'm sitting down on the outside, I'm standing up on the inside. You may not have raised your fist against God. We don't necessarily see that by those in power that are saying taking the life of an unborn child is okay. That, that wicked position of pro-abortion. They don't necessarily say they're against God, but they're against God's laws and precepts, his values, his moral code. And yes, sometimes our leaders raise their fist against God. Sometimes it is kings and rulers who take counsel together. But this is ultimately the description of our entire society. And once sin finds a plurality, once everybody is kind of saying, oh, that's not so bad, that's okay, it may not be for me, but it's okay for them. Once society takes counsel together, sinners are emboldened. And a generation comes to embrace things that the prior generation is a gag at what is accepted. Man is spiritually fallen. It says here that the peoples plot in vain. I said there's a connection between verses or Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. That word plot was actually found in Psalm 1. If your Bible's still open, take a look at uh, Psalm 1 verse 2. The righteous man is described, the one who's blessed. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he plots day and night. I mean, meditates day and night. It's the same verb family. He is meditating on the law of God. What does that mean? To meditate on the law of God. He's not just reading it over and over. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. No, he's meditating on it. What does that mean? It means he's thinking of ways that it applies to him. It, he's thinking on ways that it would guide his steps. It would also guard him from other things. I must do this, I must not do that. He's meditating on the word of God. The same verb is in the mouths of the rebels and the peoples who plot in vain. And here it has the sense of murmuring or muttering and saying, how can we change this? They are not meditating on God's word. Rather, they are meditating upon their sinful inclinations, their desires. I have goals. I want that. And how do I get it? And the ends justify the means. You can spot those who are not serving God by the way they live their life, calculating to obtain the desires of their heart, apart from God. They don't want God to get in the way. 
like their rulers there taking counsel together against the Lord. That's the name Jehovah, the God of the Bible, against the Lord and his anointed. That's his Messiah. That is his Christ. And they're not just muttering and plotting, but they are mutinous. There is open rebellion here. Let us burst their bonds from us and cast away their cords from us. I don't want your rules. And I don't want your rules around my friends. John Newton has a sermon on Psalm 2. He has three sermons on different verses. Because they also appear in Handel's Messiah. And as Newton looks at this rebellion, this mutiny, he reflects. He says, what must the holy angels think of such baseness, presumption, and obstinacy of such creatures? It's shocking. It's not enough for the wicked to disobey and reject the law, says David Dixon, uh, doing that for their own part, but they will also have them abolished for all. This opposition... The voice of the rebel is clear. But why? Isn't that the question God's word begins with as, it, as we listen in on these rebels? Why do they rage? Why? The answer is also biblical. Because of sin in their heart. Their fallen nature. Their selfish drive to sin. Their unwillingness to submit to the obligations of divine law. In one of the parables of Jesus, the, the ruler who had invested authority and then left for a far country, heard back from the citizens of that land, we will not have this man to rule over us. Why? Their selfish, sinful interests are their priority. Their affections are corrupted. And that's not peculiar to any one age or any one nation. When Jesus came and he was opposed, it wasn't just the Jews who received him, not the Gentiles as well, and the Romans. Why? The sermon by John Newton goes on with jaw dropped, as it were. Why would anyone oppose Jesus when he showed up? And I'm so looking forward to our study of Luke in the coming weeks and months as we look afresh at Jesus. Why would someone oppose him? Was he not filled with compassion and kindness? Didn't Jesus willingly share our lot, knowing pain, suffering, hunger, restlessness, No place to lay his head. How many of his miracles were aimed at alleviating his personal situation? None. But rather he would stay late into the night healing and teaching. Teaching and healing. Look at his patience with his disciples. Look at his hours in prayer for things to be better. For God's will to be done. When you look at the character Of Jesus, who would oppose him? It's shocking. It's even shocking today. Why are people so opposed to Jesus and the God of the Bible when it's all intended for our good and God's glory to be a shepherd to us, to secure for us relief from our shame and guilt and an inheritance in heaven. Who opposes this and why? This question at the start of Psalm 2 is one that the whole Bible works to answer and make clear. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together are really the cornerstone, not only of the Psalter in the Old Testament, but of the Bible. Psalm 1 showing us the two paths and which one we should take. And Psalm 2 showing us our Savior from sin and guilt and God's provision of peace in him. But there are mutterings and there is mutiny. And men take offense. John Newton said one more quote from Newton. The gospel offends the pride of men by considering them all on one level 
as sinners in the sight of God and by proposing only one method of salvation without allowing for any differences of plea or character. The world is all in the same boat. The whole world needs the Savior. But they don't care for that. Before we move on, do you not see in this first stanza the nature of sin? Do you not see the great test for humanity is this? What do you think of Christ? Are you right with God and welcome his anointed? Or are you in rebellion and standing off, indeed fleeing from the anointed one? There are only two categories of people in the world. Which are you? The second stanza is what the Lord says. We hear, as it were, from God the Father in heaven, as the narrator of the psalm speaks. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What contrast in the scene to the kings of the earth getting together and plotting their mutiny. God laughs. What does that mean? He doesn't mean it's funny. It's a human expression for contempt. Huh? Really? Really? Do you know who you're rebelling against? It's just our common way of speaking. There's really no humor here. As Derek Kidner says, the only laughing matter here is their arrogance itself, not the suffering it will cost before it ends. But the Lord sees the machinations of men. He sees the plottings of your own heart, how you might want to get away with your favorite sin. He sees. And he goes, what's with that? And he not only laughs as he sees and realizes, he holds them in derision and will speak to them in his wrath. Notice here the reality of God's wrath. Another theme throughout the Bible, judgment exists and judgment is coming for those who stand opposed to the Lord God. You will read about that in the Garden of Eden. You'll read about it in the Law of Moses. You'll read it in the history of the Old Testament. You'll read about it in the ministry of Jesus when he decries the Pharisees in their self-righteousness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Words of judgment and woe because the wrath of God is real and the wrath of God will fall. You need to read Romans chapter 1. You need to read the book of Revelation if you want to know about the wrath of God It is coming. How at the end of Revelation chapter 6, you see men facing the wrath of God. And they cry out, mountains and hills fall on us, hide us from the wrath of God. It is real. And you know in your heart. Because we have, we're wired to understand justice and how it works. We know that what is evil must be punished. And when we see evil flare up in our culture, in our community, and we say, that's wrong, that's evil, we feel, as it were, but one drop of the wrath of God. And it will fall. And if you have no Savior, all the Rocky Mountain mountain range can fall in you. It will not protect you from the wrath of God. Psalm 2 gives us the perspective, even while men are in their rebellion, that God sees what's going on and he will deal with it. And he will not let sinners off the hook apart from being saved by his son. So I commend to you the reality of God's wrath. It's not the only message of the Bible, and I plead with you, it's not even the main message of the Bible. The Bible is largely good news, given that reality of wrath, that there's a way of escape. The Bible tells us about Noah's ark, God's judgment on the world, but his mercy to those who trust in him, safe in the ark. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament tells us that God hates sin, but there's a way of atonement through the blood of a sinless lamb. 
The message of the Bible is so much more than wrath, but wrath is there. And lest any of you in your delusion, in your folly, in your vain plotting, forget it, I'm saying it aloud today. God's wrath will come on sinners. The Lord also says this in verse 6. He mentions his wrath, but here we have his direct quote. Which is not only the key to the judgment day, but it's the key to our salvation. Look at verse 6. Verses 6 and 7, two different stanzas, but they stand at the very heart of this beautiful hymn, poem, and psalm. Verse 6. As for me, says Jehovah, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We could preach all day on that verse. What is Zion? What's this holy hill? It's the spiritual city of God. And we might even do well to think that God has put his king, his spiritual king, ultimately in the midst of his people, the church. Originally, back when David and Solomon would make use of this psalm, they were talking about inaugurating the next king in Jerusalem. The city of the Jebusites that was captured by David and became the city of David, the capital of ancient Israel. And as they coronated their king, they sing this and they remind themselves that God sets up kings and takes them down. And as they read and sing the whole psalm, they remember that God is king of kings. But this points ahead to the Messiah whom God will send and place in this world as king of the church of his people. One of the other perhaps more famous messianic royal psalms in the Bible is number 110. We don't have time to read it, but I point it out to you. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. It goes on. It speaks of the Christ. Not just the king in Jerusalem. But the language transcends that first setting to the prophetic fulfillment in Jesus. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. And he will rule until all the enemies are subdued. There's a consistent picture here of what God's doing by installing his king. He laughs at the the kings of the earth in their plots. You know what, guys? I've already picked the Messiah, the King of Kings. He's here. Deal with it. As for me, the, the language is emphatic. I pick who's in charge. And God the Father sends God the Son. Do you hear what the Lord says? We heard the rebels, but do you hear what God the Father says? God says, I am putting forth Jesus. He's in charge. Oh, that the world would hear that message. Oh, that we would take comfort and refuge in that truth. The king that he sets up is the next speaker. There's another stanza here, and it's very subtle. As you begin, you have to determine that by context. Verse 7 speaks in the first person. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, that's all capitals, meaning Jehovah, said to me. So who is speaking? Well, in the original context, it was David or Solomon or one of the kings placed over Israel. They understood that the Lord was calling them and ruling them. And they had a relationship with the Lord. And that they are installed at his good pleasure. But the language here in this third stanza goes far beyond the borders of Israel. Even Solomon's great and glorious kingdom. This looks ahead to the kingdom of Jesus, which will cover the earth. The gates of hell will not prevail against that kingdom. And some from every tribe and tongue in the world will be present at the last day. At the victory banquet of the kingdom of Jesus. So the speaker in verses 7, 8, and 9 is this Messiah, this anointed one. Here's a word on language. In the Old Testament, the word for anointed one was Messiah. In the New Testament Greek, the word for anointed one is Christ. Same person, same title, just two different languages give rise to Messiah 
or Christ. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, his divine name, Lord, his human name, Jesus, and his title, his office, the anointed one, Christ. Hear what the Messiah King says. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You know, that's one of the main contentions when Jesus came into the world and he was tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 3. The devil kept testing him at one key point. Do you remember? All those tests by Satan said, if you are the son of God, do this. If you are the son of God, do that. He was tested on this very point. Who are you? What's your mission? Because that's at the crux of the whole Bible, isn't it? God sent his son to be our savior, to be the Messiah, to be the king. So here, the voice of the Messiah, first in the mouth of David and Solomon, ultimately in Jesus. He repeats the decree. He tells of the decree. That's kind of strange language. He's telling what God the Father has pronounced. We often refer to this Father, Son, Trinitarian decree as the covenant of redemption. Those of you who are armchair theologians, you can pursue this and look it up. And for the non-armchair theologians, you can maybe check the Ligonier website. R.C. Sproul has some helpful conversation about the covenant of redemption. Here's a quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, God's plan A is from everlasting to everlasting. It is both perfect and unchangeable as it rests on God's eternal character, which is holy, omniscient, and immutable. God's eternal plan is not revised because of moral imperfections in that which must be purified. His plan was not corrected or amended because he gained new knowledge that he lacked at the beginning. God's plan never changes because he never changes. And here he comes. The covenant of redemption is intimately concerned with God's eternal plan. It involves two parties. It is not a covenant between God and humans. The covenant of redemption is among the persons of the Godhead, specifically between the Father and the Son. Central to the message of Jesus and the covenant of redemption is the declaration that he was sent into the world by the Father. And he is the true Son of God. That's at the heart of the solution. He is God's chosen one, God's anointed one to be king, to be Christ. That's important. The father and son are on the same page. The one who is anointed knows his purpose and his, as it were, delegated authority for King David or King Solomon. They knew that they were accountable to God. God the son came, humbled himself, left the glories of heaven and entered earth, took on human nature and said things like, not my will, but thy will. Because he was on the mission, the mission of redemption. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. Have I begotten you? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. At the end of verse 9 in English, we have the close quotation, which started in verse 7. Jesus, the Messiah, is the ultimate one speaking these words, acknowledging that he is the Son of God who was sent to make the earth his possessions, that's salvation, and to break down the rebels with his scepter of iron. How do we know that Jesus Christ is the true Son of God? Well, it's clear. The Old Testament predictions and the New Testament realities. In fact, this passage is quoted in Acts 13. If you have your Bibles, take a quick look. Acts 13 quotes Psalm 2. As Paul, Acts 13, he and Barnabas are off on their first missionary journey. So they're preaching primarily to Jews on their first missionary journey, telling them that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And they quote Psalm 2. Here's Acts 13, beginning in verse 32. And we bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, 
As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he asserts who Jesus is, he quotes Psalm 2. Paul, the inspired apostle, saw Psalm 2 connected with the life of Jesus. He is the son. He is the savior. He is the messianic king. And yet the world doesn't want to accept him. When Paul would write his great epistle to the Romans, considered the great theological work of the New Testament, he would use the language of Jesus as son in the introduction. Romans 1 up to verse 4 says this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The good news, the heart of Christian theology, our only hope is that Jesus is the divine son of God. And God proved that by raising him from the dead. That's what Romans 1 tells us. And we could go on further to look at Hebrews chapter 1. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but in those first few verses it says, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son. And he points at Jesus. And interestingly enough, Hebrews 1, if you read all the way to verse 5, quotes Psalm 2. In Hebrews 1, quotes Psalm 2. And he says, The name he has inherited is more excellent than the angel's. Verse 5 says, to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2. God never said that to an angel. He only said it to Jesus. What did he say to Jesus? At his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Stop your mutterings and your rebellion and your selfish ways. Listen to Jesus. Read the Bible, hear the gospel, believe and receive me. I will be your father in heaven. I will bless you and keep you. And I'll give you a home for all eternity. Turn from your folly. Why do you think pursuing sin and counseling together in rebellion to God is going to benefit you? Christians, do we not weep at the folly of the world? They're clueless. But God has spoken. God has come. God attested to Jesus through signs and wonders. And history has changed because of Jesus, who is alive today and still at work. He's at work by his spirit through his church. And his word is still going forward. He is the true son. But notice what the true son repeats as part of that decree. He understands his role as conqueror and judge. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This isn't just the, the violent climax of a movie. And Jesus has something bigger than an AR-15. The iron rod is actually the scepter. The, the, the language allows for a translation of scepter as well. Rod has been stuck with us ever since the King James picked it up. Because in the ancient world, rod is what you would also call that, that rule, uh, the ruling item that would be held by a potentate. It could be called a rod or a scepter. We think of it now in terms of a nightstick or just a weapon of violence. But I tell you, in this context, in the Bible, we must think of it as a rightful scepter of power wielded by a sovereign. And Jesus understands that. Indeed, in the book of Revelation, when we're told how things will end, three times this rod from Psalm 2 is mentioned. In Revelation 2, and speaking to one of the churches, it says that he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Jesus knows he will have to conquer and subdue sinners who remain in their rebellion. 
And he will have the rightful scepter to do that. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, that's the complex apocalyptic parable of a woman who gives birth and the dragon tries to destroy the child. Hopefully you understand it. You can look at it. Revelation 2 verse 5 said, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's Jesus. Who carries the scepter of power, of conquering and judgment. And finally in Revelation 19 verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, a scepter of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The Jesus we know and love will be there at the day of judgment and will tread the winepress of the wrath of God. Hearing the truth of God, my friends, ought to shake us to the core. Who would oppose this God, who is God alone, but who comes with such grace? He's the conqueror. And the judge, do you hear what the Messiah King says? Are you listening? John Newton says, Notwithstanding all the arts and assaults of man, whether open enemies or pretended friends, the Bible is still ours, the gospel is still preached, yes, and is still preaching and spreading. Jesus will conquer. But the Psalms are not over. We're just told that Jesus wins in the end. He conquers and and wrath is real. So you better have a plan. The psalmist gives us the final voice here. And he leads us into our conclusion in Psalm 2 verses 10, 11, and 12. He says, now therefore, he's entering into his conclusion. Having pulled away the veil and shown you that God is king of all. That your plottings are in vain. O kings, be wise. Be warned. O rulers of the earth, be wise, be warned. That's not only a message to ancient rulers or to the Jews that would oppose Jesus, the rulers of the Pharisees. That is a message for everyone who dismisses Christ. Who thinks of gentle Jesus as irrelevant to modern life. I've got my 401k to manage. I've got vacation to plan. Do you have to preach any longer? I've got to get going. Anyone who dismisses Jesus as Lord. The lame man at the temple begging Peter. You got any coins? Peter says, silver or gold have I none. But what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise and walk. The world doesn't really even know what they need. It knows what they want and they pursue it. They're not listening to what the Messiah King says. Be wise, be warned. Newton observes here with just an amazing glow on his face, I'm sure. Our great God of his own goodness made the first overtures of reconciliation, inviting these rebels to receive pardon. Do you hear what verse 10 says? Verse 10 says, I see you guys in your mischief, your plotting, your wickedness. Repent. Who is a pardoning God like this? Don't have a Jonah moment and say, I'm not going to give them a chance to repent. I'm going to run the other way. Because God, you you forgive sinners. And Jonah, in his ethnic bias, ran the other way. I don't want them to hear. They might repent because you're, you're a forgiving God. He is a forgiving God. He is... He's so amazingly rich beyond what we can imagine. He is holy and just and full of wrath against sin. Yet he is also mercy and love 
and kindness. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he says, you guys, repent. Be warned and be wise. Be wise. About what? To understand who the Lord is. Do we not remember what it is? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9, verse 10, and throughout Proverbs, throughout the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Be wise, be warned. It's as if he's saying, do you realize who you're opposing? And there's no way you can win. We need to say this to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our rebellious children. I, I hear what you think. But the God who created you in your mother's womb said that you've got to be right with him by means of his anointed. There's only one way of being right with God. That's through Jesus Christ. This is God's plan. Jesus is his son. There is no other way. Be wise. Be warned. Don't trust the counsels of the wicked. Don't sit and hang out with the scoffers. It's a dead end. Turn. Be warned. The psalmist says, serve the Lord. In in addition to turning them from destruction, he points them towards their duties. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Serve, rejoice, kiss. He's calling them to believe on the Son, to honor the Son, and to serve the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Derek Kidner says, the mutinous nations of the prologue are offered their only hope, which is submission. But it is an invitation rather than an ultimatum. Grace breaks through completely in these closing lines. What kind of God is this who offers a way of escape? Psalm 1 and 2 introduce the whole message of the Bible, the whole story of redemption. God is holy. Men are in trouble in their sin. God has sent a Savior. It is up to us to be wise, be warned, to repent and believe. And to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. To find in Him life and peace, and health. That phrase, kiss the sun, uh, again, that's a little uncomfortable. Our modern world is so overly sexualized and sensualized. We, we go in weird directions when we see words like this. It is simply the ancient word for, for kissing and offering homage and loyalty and service to your sovereign. Will you bow to Jesus? Will you kiss the Son? Will you do it publicly? Will you own Christ and forsake those vain counselors? Will you come to Jesus? Now is the day of salvation. When he returns, it will be too late. You know, whenever it talks about Jesus returning, it talks about judgment. He's not coming a second time to give you a second, a third, a fourth, a final chance. He's coming in judgment he's already come he's left his message he's deployed his people to tell the world repent and believe hear the good news Jesus is Lord if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord you shall be saved and see the promise at the very end of this psalm this powerful indeed scary psalm It ends with this gospel gracious promise. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Where Psalm 1 points us to meditate on the word of God and be careful to do according to all that's written in it. Uh, Boy, that's a huge task. Here, Psalm 2 ends with blessing. It was a Psalm 1 opened with blessing, but it says those who take refuge in him. This is talk of a savior and trust in him. For all the fierceness we've seen in Psalm 2, the call is still that people should be wise and the promise is that they should be blessed. 
I think I could sum up Psalm 2 in this short phrase from Derek Kidner. There is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. My friends, the world won't agree with this message. But it is this message in the preaching of the gospel, the setting forth of truth that will set men free. I close with this. I think the New Testament version of be wise, be warned is this. Know the truth and be set free from the gospel of John. Jesus said, John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not your vain counsels. The truth will set you free. That's the only hope we have for our loved ones, our neighbors, and this world. They answered Jesus. And Jesus replied again, Truly, I truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Be wise. Be warned. Be saved today. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you. If we have the capacity to tremble at your word, we thank you that you've changed our hearts and minds. You've opened our eyes and our ears, our will to your word. But Father, there are still many around us in their rebellion. They, they have their own one-liners. They have their own consensus. They have their own campaigns about what they think is right. And helpful. Lord, we thank you that common grace is at work in the world. And even the unrighteous can bring about some measures of good. But there's no escape from divine justice. We pray that those who are in rebellion from the Son, from the Lord Jesus Christ, will hear, believe, and obey him that they would receive the gospel. And Father, we'd be faithful in telling the gospel. And Father, may this psalm too bring comfort and encouragement to believers that the Son, the Lord Jesus, has been given the reign of the world and he will conquer. He will come for his own. We'll be at peace, having taken refuge in him. Father, may the truth run with power across our land. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.